So uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, or even if you haven't, I want to just kind of catch up to what we've been doing. We, as we came back in person on Sunday mornings, we kind of decided instead of just kind of running along with what we were doing, we said, hey, let's stop and let's use this moment to specifically just ask God to help us understand what it is that he's been trying to teach us in this last season. You know, um, the, the last 13 or 14 months have been crazy. I don't have to convince you of that. You know, it's been crazy, not just for our church, but for humanity in general. And I think there's something about us as people when we go through really hard situations, our tendency is not to learn from those moments, but our tendency is to try to get through those moments and to forget those moments and to to get into whatever's next as fast as possible. And so we've just kind of decided, hey, at least for several weeks here, we're just gonna stop and collectively and individually, we're gonna say, hey, Jesus, would you show us what it is that you've been trying to teach us in the midst of this moment that we've been in Uh, as a culture. And so the metaphor that we've been using, if you've been with us, is this metaphor of the wilderness. You see the wilderness all throughout scriptures. It's one of God's preferred places to form his people. God took the Israelites from their captivity into the wilderness to form them. God took Ruth in the wilderness to form her. God took David and Elijah and Jesus and the disciples and Paul. Like, Like when God wants to do a deep work in his people, he so often takes them into the wilderness. And although we haven't been in a physical wilderness over the last 14 months, we've certainly been in a spiritual wilderness because a wilderness in the scriptures is not just a place, it's a state of mind. It's a place where you find yourself facing the unpredictable, the undomesticated, the untamable, the uncertain. And I don't know what word you would use to describe the last 14 months, but I guarantee you some of those words would fit the bill. And something happens in us when we find ourselves kind of in this moment. So two weeks ago, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter eight, and we looked at this moment where Moses, right before the people are coming out of their wilderness experience, he says, hey, let's stop and let's remember, let's remember what God has been teaching us. Let's remember how God has been testing us. Let's remember how God has been humbling us, and he does this because he loves us. And so last two weeks ago, we were talking about the way that God loves us and forms us in the wilderness, And I gave you some homework. Hopefully you went home and did that. If you didn't do it, go back, listen to the podcast, download the resource and try that. And then last week, uh, Andrew just gave us a beautiful message out of Matthew chapter 11. And we didn't talk just about remembering the wilderness, but we said, how do we rest in the goodness of Jesus, the one that wants to form us in the wilderness? Because the wilderness, it, it can be a terrifying place, especially if you don't understand the heart of the one that's trying to form you there. But this morning, we're gonna flip over the coin. We're gonna look at the elephant in the room, the other side of the story, you know, however you wanna frame it. And I wanna talk about this reality that we all discover in the wilderness. In fact, it might be the thing that makes the wilderness such a dreadful place for all of us because the truth is it's not just the environment, it's not just the uncertainty, it's not just the unpredictability, it's not just the undomesticated reality of the wilderness that makes it so dangerous. What makes the wilderness so dangerous is that there in the untamed, unpredictable, undomesticated places, we discover there's a competing agenda for your life. And the truth is, your loving heavenly Father is not the only one seeking to form you in the wilderness. There's someone else that has an agenda for you and it's part of what's made the last 14 months may be so difficult in some ways. I remember years ago, I was having a conversation with a good friend of our family. Uh, she's a woman that I respect uh, like as much as anybody in my life. God's used her to form me in so many amazing ways. She's been a friend of our family since the time that I was born, just an amazing woman who has spent her whole professional career as a public educator. 
And uh, she, she's taught little kids her whole life, and her job has been to, to teach, teach kids how to read and how to write and how to do math. And if, if you've not stopped to thank an educator recently, you've got to do it. It's, it's like the hardest job in the world. Parents that suddenly became educators this year are like, oh my goodness, uh, our educators are so underpaid. In fact, we have so many educators in our church. Can we just show them our love and honor this morning? Can we just thank them for the year? Those that did not plan to be educators but are now educators, can we thank them for what they did this year? Just, just crazy hard work. And, then, and this woman who has been such a pivotal person in my life, you know, for 30 years, she's done this really difficult work, and yet it wasn't just difficult because it's hard to teach kids. Her work was difficult because the kids she's trying to teach are coming from really difficult circumstances. And so they'd show up every day, and she didn't know if they had been given a meal the night before. She didn't know if their parents had come home that night. She didn't know if they had rested enough, if any of these things had gone on. And so for 30 years, we watched her do this really difficult work with a lot of joy, with a lot of purpose, with a lot of hope. But several years ago, we saw something in her begin to shift where instead of feeling the joy of that tough work, she began to be really discouraged in it. And I remember one day we were just kind of asking her, like, what's the sudden shift she began to tell us how in the midst of this really hard work, their school got new administration, and instead of the administration working with the teachers, the administration began to work against the teachers. And she made a statement that has stuck with me for years, and it has defined my understanding of what makes the spiritual wilderness so difficult. She said, it's one thing to do an impossible task, but it's an entirely different thing to do an impossible task when you know that someone's opposing you in it. It's one thing to do an impossible task, but it's an entirely different thing to do an impossible task when you know that somebody's opposing you in the midst of it. And this is part of the thing that has made the last year of your life and of humanity's experience so challenging. It's not just that your job shifted and your friendship shifted and you found yourself in isolation. All those things are tough in and of themselves. But part of what's made the last year so complex is as you've gone through it, whether you've understood this or not, it hasn't just been your loving Heavenly Father trying to form you. There is an enemy who has shown up in the midst of it, and he has sought to kill, to steal, and to destroy what God's been trying to do in you. Because in the wilderness, you discover there is this competing agenda. It's not just a father who wants to strengthen you. It's an enemy who wants to destroy you. And I love this moment from, from Luke chapter four. We're gonna look at it this morning. I'll give you just a little bit of context before we jump in. Jesus is 30, 30 years old. In Luke chapter three, you see the moment right before the one we're about to jump into. Jesus is 30 years old. And he moves from this moment of relative obscurity into this place of public notoriety. He steps into his public ministry. It says he's baptized in water. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. This audible voice from heaven declares, this is Jesus, my son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. There's this moment, you know, before Jesus has preached a sermon, healed a sick person, uh, done a miracle, forgiven a sin. Before Jesus has done anything, God affirms his identity. He says, this is who you are. You're my beloved son. Like Jesus stepped into this incredible moment and this is the story that immediately follows on the heels of it. Look at Luke chapter four, starting in verse one. It says, then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and he was led by the Spirit into what? Somebody say it out loud. Into the, into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. 
where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. Now there's so much we could look at there, I just want you to notice this scripture for a minute. That Jesus, the Son of God, filled by the Spirit of God, brought to inaugurate the kingdom of God, he is filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit and where does the Spirit take him? The Spirit doesn't lead him to a revival. (laughs) The Spirit doesn't take him to a beach where he is sitting with his feet kicked up, being served, just relaxing, reading the scriptures, just taking it easy. The Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness. Did you know it's possible for you to be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, but for your life to temporarily feel like hell? Sometimes the Spirit leads you in ways that you don't expect. Keeps going like this, verse three. Here you begin to see the competing agenda, not just a a loving father. It says, the devil shows up and said to Jesus, I don't know if you write in your Bibles, you should underline this word, if. This is what he said. He said, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. He said, if. What did God just declare over Jesus in Luke chapter three? He said, you are my son. Like definitively, like this is who you are. And the devil shows up and he just begins to subtly, subversively question this. He says, if. Verse four, Jesus answers, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. And then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, I will give you all their authority and their splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want if you'll worship me and it will all be yours. I just wanna make note of something here. The devil is not telling Jesus the truth. (laughs) Did you know that the devil does not have to operate by a standard of ethics? (laughs) Like he's not bound by an integrity agreement. He's the father of lies. And I want you to see his audacity. He shows up to Jesus, the son of God, filled by the spirit of God, being led by God himself into the wilderness to be formed by God. And he shows up in that moment and and the devil has the audacity to not just challenge the scriptures, but to lie face-to-face, toe-to-toe with the Son of God. Keeps going like this. But Jesus answered, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Jesus, he keeps quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8, the scriptures we looked at a few weeks ago together. Verse 9, and so the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, verse 10. Now the devil's gonna begin to do the unthinkable. He begins to quote the scriptures back to Jesus. And the devil here is gonna quote the words of Psalm 91, verse 11 through 12. He says, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left Jesus until another opportune time. There's so much we could could explore this morning. But as we think about this moment, we found ourselves in the midst of the wilderness. I, I want us to just really ask God, hey God, would you help us recognize the way that temptation works in order that we can resist it with Jesus by the power of Jesus for the glory of Jesus? Like how do we recognize the temptation, the way the enemy comes at us, and how do we begin to resist what he's doing? And I don't know if you're the type of person that takes notes, but I just want you to to recognize the nature of temptation here in the wilderness, just the audacity 
of the devil as he comes against Jesus. The first thing that really struck me this week is that temptation, temptation, it is so often a situational reality. It's so often a situational reality. You look at the end of verse 13, and it says, the devil left Jesus until another opportune time came up. In other words, the devil, I don't know if you know this or not, he typically is not applying pressure on your life evenly at all moments, all times, across all places. He comes at you in specific moments, in specific situations, for specific reasons. Temptation is often situational, and if we wanna resist the work of the devil in our life, we have to begin by recognizing the situations he tends to come at us. It's fascinating to me when I look at this moment with Jesus. You begin to see that, that Jesus, there's kind of two things that define his situation in this moment. He is spiritually determined and he is physically vulnerable. He's spiritually determined and he's physically vulnerable. Think about his spiritual determination. Jesus, son of God, he's just been baptized in water, filled with the spirit. He's been commissioned by God. Hey, this is my son. I'm well pleased. I'm getting ready to go into this. Jesus is in the midst of a 40-day season of prayer and fasting. I mean, think about how you feel with the Lord in the midst of our February fast every year. I mean, Jesus, he is locked and loaded. He's not in a season of apathy. I mean, Jesus is in this moment of spiritual decisiveness. And the devil shows up and he comes at him. Have you ever noticed this in your own life? Anytime you make a, a moment of great decision for Jesus, the devil doesn't just paint a target on your back, he paints it on your chest because he's not scared to go toe to toe, face to face with you. If the devil wasn't scared to go face to face with Jesus, the son of God, I promise you he's not intimidated by you. And he shows up in this moment, not when Jesus is spiritually depleted, but when Jesus is spiritually decisive. This has been my journey. I want you to reflect on your own journey. I remember when I was 16 years old, I became a follower of Jesus, and then I got baptized and was filled with the Spirit of God. I was feeling so good. And I remember a couple of weeks into that decision, I sit down with my youth pastor, and he says, hey, how's it been now that you're trying to live as a disciple of Jesus? And I said, it's been the hardest two weeks of my life. And I don't know that he expected me to say that. I'm not sure that I expected to feel it. <laughs> but what I found is like when I made that decision, all of a sudden there was a target that was not just on my back, but it was on my chest. It's been true in almost every area of my life when Sydney and I decided to start Ethos. All hell broke loose in our life. When we felt called by God to, to call the city to a season of prayer and fasting, it felt like all hell broke loose in our life. Maybe you were here a couple of years ago when we started that. I remember sitting right over here on the front row and everybody was so excited and Sydney and I were just sitting there in tears. We felt so beat down by what the devil was doing in our life. See, the moment you make that decision, and maybe you've experienced that this year, the moment you make that decision to follow Jesus as Lord, the moment you decide to fight that addiction, to live in purity in your dating relationships, the moment you decide to lead your family, I'm telling you, you're hitting the hornet's nest, and you begin to discover the competing agenda that's always awaiting you in the wilderness. See, temptation, it's often situational. Jesus, he was spiritually decisive, but he was also physically vulnerable. In Luke chapter four, you see Jesus wrestling with the unholy trinity of temptation, exhaustion, isolation, and hunger. He's tired, he's alone, and he's hungry. Have you ever noticed in your own life, like when you're physically vulnerable, the way the devil shows up? 
this last year, when you've been alone, isn't it crazy the thoughts you think when nobody else is with you? You think things, you wrestle with things that you don't struggle with when you're with a group of people at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. But when you're tired, you're physically vulnerable, the devil shows up. When you're alone, when you're worn out, it's the reason infomercials run at two o'clock in the morning and not two o'clock in the afternoon. Because you would never buy that in the middle of the day. (laughs) It's the reason scrolling your phone, playing around on a dating app at one o'clock in the morning is a horrible idea every single time. I love you enough to tell you that. It's a terrible idea. The enemy comes at us in these situations. When you're hungry, sometimes this is physical hunger. My wife is an amazing person. When she's hungry, she is a scary person. And I say that, like, she's right here, I know this. I hope she ate breakfast. Like, you know, um, it's, remember we had been dating like five months and things were going great and we're driving around the car and we're trying to find a place to eat. I'm like, we could go here, we could go here, we go here. And, and she's playing it cool and finally she says, I haven't told you this. But here's the reality of who I am. When I'm hungry, I'm terrible, and I'm really hungry, and if you don't pick a place, I'm gonna murder you. Like, you've got, <laughs> you've got to pick a place to eat. Guys, temptation, it's not a random attack. It's often a situational attack, and the moment we begin to recognize, the moment we begin to recognize the moments we find ourselves in, we learn how to resist. Jesus was spiritually determined. He was physically vulnerable. Second thing, that I notice about the reality of temptation here is it's not just situational. Temptation is often subversive. It's it's often subversive. In in other words, the devil very rarely comes with the obvious thing you expect him to come with in the obvious moment. He shows up in subtlety. I remember being a kid and I'd read this story and maybe you're feeling this this morning. I read through it and I go, what is it that Jesus was even being tempted with? Because I'd read it and I thought, none of those temptations seem very obvious. It's not like the devil showed up and said, hey, Jesus, you want to smoke a blunt? Hey, Jesus, you want to say, say some bad words? Jesus, you want to hurt somebody? Like, he doesn't show up with these like, obvious. Some of you are like, offended that I just said that. Like, the devil doesn't show up tempting Jesus the way that you expect him. He shows up in this subversive, or if that's too big of a word, this subtle, sneaky way. He shows up and Jesus, he begins, uh, the devil begins to test the perimeters of Jesus' convictions. He really wrestles if Jesus is really as rooted in the word of God as Jesus says he is. I don't know if you notice this, but guys, this is where all temptation typically begins. The devil begins to test your convictions of what it is that you actually think and believe about the word of God. So the devil shows up and he says, hey Jesus, if, he just begins to subtly question what God has said. And then by the end of the story, the, the devil is, is literally misquoting the scriptures. And if you've tuned me out, I hope you hear this. Please hear this. Did you know that just because somebody uses a scripture to prove their point doesn't mean they're in line with God's agenda? Did you know that everybody that quotes the Bible and teaches the Bible and puts verses from the Bible on thing doesn't mean they're in line with the heart of God? Did you know that the devil actually knows the scriptures probably better than most of us? Which is a sobering reality. And he shows up and he begins to test Jesus' convictions around the word of God. Over quarantine, we, we got a dog because we thought that would be a good idea. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else 
made that mistake, but we got a, we got, he's awesome, we got a puppy. And we get at this puppy, and then our neighbors get a puppy, because they thought that'd be awesome. We've got this fence between our, our two yards, and these dogs became instant best friends, and they started trying to get to each other. They'd crawl under the fence. They got to where they could jump over the fence. They would get around the fence, and for about 30 seconds, that was cute, and then it just became frustrating. And so if anybody's looking for a dog, I've got one. These, these dogs, I'll look out in the backyard, and they're just running the fence. And what are they doing when they're running the fence? They're looking for the weak spot. They're looking for the hole. They're looking for that place to get through. And this is what the devil does. He starts looking for any weak spots in Jesus's life. He starts to challenge the word. And then he doesn't just challenge the word of God in Jesus's life, but he begins to get under the surface subversively, subtly, in a sneaky way. He gets under the surface and begins to see where it is that Jesus really finds his source of hope and identity. And this is the root of of almost all temptation, and we could spend the next three weeks just talking about this one part. We're just gonna spend a second here, but I want you to notice what he does. He doesn't challenge Jesus with bad behavior. He challenges Jesus with misplaced motives. Henry Nouwen, who's one of my favorite authors, he says, most human beings find their identity in one of three destructive places. They define themselves by what they do, they define themselves by what they have, or they define themselves by what other people think of them. Henry Nouwen says the majority of human beings, we find our sense of hope and life and joy and whatever based on what we do, based on what we have, based on what others think about us. And what some of you have discovered over the last year in the midst of this wilderness is that as you've been alone, as everything has shifted, you've discovered that temptation has come at you as the enemy has tried to speak lies because you have misplaced your sense of hope over the years. And so he comes at Jesus in these same ways. Temptation, it's, it's often situational. Temptation, it is often subversive. But temptation, it is always strategic. If you take notes, it is, it is always strategic. And so temptation, it's not always coming at you unequaled. It's not always gonna come at you the same way. But every time the devil seeks to destroy you in the midst of your wilderness experience, it's for a strategic purpose. It's for a strategic reason. Look back at verse three with me. It's so important. The devil said to him, What's that word, verse three? He says, if. Hey, if you are the son of God. 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 What had God just said to Jesus? He said, you are my son. I love you. I'm well pleased. And the devil shows up and he goes, ah, if. If. Guys, here's what you have to know. The strategy behind every demonic temptation, the strategy behind every demonic temptation is an attack on who you are. It's an attack on who you are. The devil is not interested in getting Jesus to do something bad. The devil was getting, Jesus was interested in getting Jesus to forget who he was. He wasn't interested in causing Jesus to do something bad. He wanted Jesus to fundamentally forget who he was. I'm convinced 
that Satan was fine with Jesus being a good guy, a good teacher, a moral teacher, even an influencer. But what he did not want and what he did not need was Jesus acting like the Son of God. I remember a couple of years ago uh, when my oldest son Michael was eight, I took him to California. I was speaking at a thing out there. We just made it into a father-son trip. And, and maybe you've heard me tell this story uh, before. I'm sorry if you're hearing it again, but it's been one of the most formative moments over the last two years of my life. He and I were out on this, this trip together. And one day I had a break from what I was speaking at. And I said, hey, let's, let's go down to the beach together and, and hang out. And so I took him down to Venice Beach, which just pro tip, I, don't take a kid to Venice Beach ever. Um, I, I'd been as an adult, but never with a child that I loved and was trying to form. And so showed up at Venice Beach, made that mistake. And, and we're there and all sorts of craziness is going on. We're, we're watching all these guys um, skate and surf and having a great time. And in the midst of our time there, this, this guy walks up who was uh, demon-possessed, which it's another story for another day. Uh, I just lost some of you right there, and it's okay. But um, this, guy was, this guy was manifesting a demon. It's a pretty scary moment. And in that moment, I was not thinking like a disciple. I was thinking like a father. And so I'm like, hey, let's get away from this moment. And so uh, Mike and I got away from the moment, and he and I prayed for the guy. And then we just went about our day. And I didn't think anything else about it. Two or three weeks went by, and one day Micah and I were hanging out, and as kids so often do, they will remind you of things that you've totally forgotten about. And I'll never forget what Micah said to me. He said, Dad, hey, do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were in California, and we saw that demon-possessed guy? And I said, yeah, I'll never forget it. He said, Dad, how come we didn't try to help that guy? And this is the statement that stuck with me. He said, I thought guys like us were supposed to do things like that. I thought guys like us were supposed to do things like that. And it's one of those moments where God used my eight-year-old to remind me that he had more clarity about my identity than I did. Because the truth is, the root of almost every sin in my life does not begin with me doing something bad, but starts with me forgetting who I am in Jesus. The root of every sin in your life, I'm telling you, it doesn't begin just with you desiring to do something bad. It begins when you forget who you are in Jesus. The, the bad stuff you do, the good stuff that you fail to do. And the devil comes at Jesus and you just see temptation. It's situational. It's subversive. And it's strategic. It's designed to cause Jesus to forget who he is. But here's what I love about the moment in Luke chapter four, and we'll wrap up in just a couple of minutes. Luke chapter four, it's not just a picture of temptation, it's a picture of how you stand strong in the face of it. And I love this, in the midst of it, Jesus, he doesn't bend, he doesn't buckle, he doesn't compromise, he doesn't falter, like Jesus in the midst of this incredible temptation, he stands strong, and there's all of these things that we can do, but there's this one thing that I want you to notice, Jesus does it over and over and over in the story, three different times. What does Jesus do in the midst of the wilderness when he's experiencing temptation? He leans not on what God was saying, but he leans on what God had already said. And guys, this is so important for us. Because if I was writing the story, here's how I'd want the story to go. In the midst of the desert, when the devil is tempting Jesus, I would really want God to audibly speak louder than the enemy. Have you ever been there before where you're just hearing the voice of the devil and you're like, man, I wish God would just say something. 
But have you ever noticed that sometimes in the wilderness, it feels like God has gone silent and the devil is speaking through a megaphone? Have you ever felt that before? And I'm telling you, what I wish happened in Luke chapter four was that, that God just shouted the devil down. <laughs> that as the devil's speaking, that the father would have gone, hey, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> You're my son, I love you. But I think God allowed Jesus to go through this moment because he knew it would be the experience that you and I would have. And he wanted us to understand how we stand strong in the face of temptation. And here's what Jesus did in the midst of the struggle when it seemed like God had gone silent, Jesus chose to lean back into the voice that had spoken truth to him years before. He leaned back into the scriptures. He reflected on the scriptures. He meditated on the scriptures. And even when his circumstances seemed to contradict the scriptures, it was what God had spoken that allowed him to get through the moment when God felt silent. It's the way we resist the attack in the wilderness. It's what Jesus did in the desert. It's what Jesus did on the cross. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? And once again, it seemed like God had gone silent. You would want that to be the moment when God would speak out loud, but what does Jesus do on the cross? Jesus begins to quote the words of Psalm 22. We always just think about the first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you'll go home and read the rest of that Psalm, you realize it's not a Psalm of defeat. It's not a Psalm of despair. It is a Psalm of absolute, dominant, victorious victory. It is like this moment where Jesus, out of his heart in the midst of the wilderness, he's holding on to what God has said, even though it feels like everything has turned against him. How do we resist the temptation in the desert places? We don't just sit around and wait for a new word. We hold on tightly to that which God has already said. Our sons are playing baseball right now, and I love watching them play. It's one of my favorite things to just sit there and watch them and Yesterday, I was at my, my youngest son Judah's game. It was so much fun. Cutest thing in the world, coolest thing in the world. It's cool, Judah, not cute. Cool to watch these four to six-year-olds play baseball. And I'm just telling you, it's, it's so awesome. They're out there playing this game, and there's like a hundred just insane parents on the sidelines, just like living as though the future of these children ride on their ability to do something awesome, which is both hilarious and sad all at once, but Parents are just cheering for these kids. And, and it's funny because every now and then a play will happen and all of the parents will just stand up and start shouting things. Run, stop, throw, <laughs> like just shouting things. And you see kids just caught in the, in the headlights. Like, what do I do? Where do I go? What do I do? Where do I go? And after this happened, the, the coach called the kids aside and he got them all down on, on, the, on the foul line before they came into the dugout after what was kind of a challenging inning. <laughs> And he said, I don't care what anybody else is saying to you. When you're on the field, you only listen to one voice. And if you listen to any other voice, it's gonna get you in trouble. Guys, it's in the wilderness. It's in the wilderness that we learn which voice to listen to. And in your seat, I wanna encourage you to just grab this real quick. In your seat, it should have been this print off that just says, in Christ I am. And some of you are like, man, this sounds great. I don't even know how to do this. We've just given you 43 verses 
And I, I wanna encourage you, just beginning today, I mean, you can pick a verse a week, you can pick a verse a day, whatever you wanna do. I would encourage you to look that verse up, to memorize it, to take it deep into your heart, to pray through it. And it is crazy what the Holy Spirit of God will do the next time you find yourself in a moment of temptation. The way the Lord will begin to draw it back to you. Take this, put it in your Bible. Put it somewhere you will remember it. Because the goal of the wilderness is not just to remember the work of God. And it's not just to rest in the good-hearted nature of Jesus but it is to recognize the attempts that the enemy brings against us and then by the word of God, with the spirit of God, amongst the community of God to resist his efforts. For your joy, for the good of people around you, and for the glory of Jesus himself. I wanna end just by, by reading Hebrews chapter four over us. I, I ended my sermon a couple of weeks ago with this scripture. I may end every sermon for the rest of my life with this. I don't care, I just like it. It's so important. Over the last couple of weeks, there's been some people in our church and even beyond our church that have just, I've been walking with that have just been going through such a tough time. And in the midst of it, I've just been so grateful that Hebrews chapter four is true. Some of you have been so beaten up by the last year. Unlike Jesus, you didn't resist the enemy well and you're so defeated and you're so worn out. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest one who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Listen to this. Let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Guys, in every way you've been tempted, Jesus has faced that temptation. He understands you. But unlike you, he did not sin. Verse 16, so then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence because we know that we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Guys, the message of the wilderness is not try harder, work harder, resist harder. The message of the wilderness is come to me, all who are weary and burdened and sinful and broken and worn out and your soul will find rest. Come to me with all of your heartache, with all of your pain, with all of your shame, and you will find the mercy of God. And so this morning, we're gonna take communion together. We're gonna worship together. Uh, whether you're at home with a group of people or you're here in this room, I'm gonna pray for us, and then I wanna encourage you to get in the group with two or three people next to you, to take that top little plastic piece off to get the bread out, to open up the juice, and to start this conversation from a place of grace, to, to confess sin, to pray for strength and mercy. If you wanna receive prayer, there's some men and women at the Respond banner online. You can post prayers in the chat. We'd love to pray with you. Or you can pray in groups. And so we're gonna receive communion. We're gonna receive the strength of Jesus. And then we'll end with the time of worship. Let's pray together. Father, I love you. I thank you for the gift of getting to be with you to come to you in the midst of our weakness, we experience your strength and your mercy and your grace. God, as we break the bread, as we take the cup, as we confess sin, as we lean into the goodness of what you accomplished in the wilderness, God, would you give us strength as we continue to face our own? Help us to recognize the attempts of the enemy, but even more significantly, to resist his efforts. 
in the name of Jesus, by the word of Jesus, in the company of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. I wanna encourage you, circle your chairs up, spend some time praying, we're gonna give you seven or eight minutes to pray, to talk, to confess, to share, and then we'll wrap up our time with worship. I love you.